Luis J. Rodriguez, an award-winning poet, once upon a time a gang member, gang leader in the barrio of East Los Angeles, remembers a time just a couple of years ago looking for his kid, his son, Ramiro, who may be going through a similar period here in Chicago in the area of Humboldt Park. And he recalls that moment as he reads from his memoir. One evening that winter, after Ramiro had come in late following weeks of trouble at school, I gave him an ultimatum. Yelling burst back and forth between the walls of our humble park flat. My two-year-old son, Ruben, confused and afraid, hugged my leg as the shouting erupted. In moments, Ramiro ran out of the house, entering the cold Chicago night without a jacket. I went after him, although by my mid-thirties I had gained enough weight to slow me down considerably. Still, I sprinted down the gangway which led to a debris-strewn alley filled with furniture parts and overturned trash cans. I saw Ramiro's fleeing figure, his breath rising above him in quickly dissipating clouds. I followed him toward Augusta Boulevard, the main drag of the neighborhood. People yelled out of windows and doorways, ¿Qué pasa, hombre? Others offered information in Ramiro's direction. A father or mother chasing some child down the street is not an unfamiliar sight around here. A city like Chicago has so many places in which to hide. The gray and brown brick buildings seemed to suck people in. Ramiro would make a turn and then vanish, only to pop up again, appearing and disappearing. He flew over brick walls, scurried down another alley, then veered into a building that swallowed him up and spit him out on the other side. I kept after Ramiro until unexpectedly I found him hiding in some bushes. He stepped out, unaware I was to the side of him. Ramiro, come home, I gently implored, knowing if I pounced on him there would be little help he'd come back. He sped off again. Leave me alone, he yelled. As I watched his escape, it was like looking back into a distant time, back to my own youth, when I ran and ran, when I jumped over peeling fences, fleeing vatos locos, the police, or my own shadow in some drug-induced hysteria. I saw Ramiro run off, and then saw my body entering the mouth of darkness, my breath cutting the frigid flesh of night. It was my voice cracking open the winter sky. And that's one of the opening passages of Luis Rodriguez reading his own memoir. Uh, for, it's a very moving one called Always Running, and the subtitle La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A., La Vida Loca, The Crazy Life. That's right. So perhaps a word about that, because your son, uh, Ramiro, is right here, yeah. the guy you were chasing. That's right. Ramiro to enter the conversation, too. You remembering, reading of your father's early life. And before that, we set the scene. Right. Who you are. By the way, you recently won the uh, Lannan Award, a very big one, too, right. for writing creative work. Right. And you become a poet. But the beginning, you were a gang kid. Right, which I guess makes the point, because 20 years ago, I was in the streets. I was involved in very violent, a lot of violent activities, armed robberies, um, shootings, some stabbings. Um, you would have looked at me and would have turned away. To imagine me now being a publisher, a poet, you know, going around the, the world, country, a very gentle person, you know. I mean, to me, it's proof that people can change tremendously, that they can go from the very depths and still amount to some very important creative uh, uh, powers that they have within them. So, but 20 years ago, it was a rough time for me. It was a time in which I could have been dead. 
I barely survived it. I dedicated the book to 25 of people I knew who died before I was 18 years old. I just turned the page. The work is dedicated to, and the names of guys, Antonio Gutierrez, and you go right down the line, Freddy Mendoza, David uh, Poparalcon, Marcelino mm-hmm. Dadio Cabrera. Mm-hmm. And this goes 25. You were 18 years old, and you lost right. 25 guys already, friends, yep. at the time. 18, and the youngest was 10 years old. And so as you're telling us, we'll ask about the change and how it happened in your life. That was East LaSalle. You lived also here in Chicago, in Humboldt For Park, which has years, become yeah. a Latino area That's right. to a great extent. So he's chasing you, Ramiro, a couple of years ago. So as you hear your father talk, what thought comes to your mind? Well, there has been a lot of changes between me and my father. Because when I first joined the gang, he, we didn't have this kind of respect of each other. You know, that's why, you know, that was like kind of one of the reasons. But a lot of reasons why. You I mean you and your father? Yeah. We weren't that close at all. To, you know, now we're trying to work things out. And now you know, here's a man that's been through the things that I've been through, you know, that my friends are still going through, that I'm still going through. And he's been able to get out of it, you know, and I'm real proud, you know, it's like, you know, it's my father, you know, I'm, but I see that I'm real lucky, though. A lot of my friends, a lot of the boys in other gangs don't have that. You know, they don't really have nobody to turn to like I can. Even, you know, even though me and my father, we still get their problems here and there, but we're still trying to work things out. And a lot of my other friends, you know, they don't, don't got that, you know, and I feel real bad because they should have been able to, not just a father, but somebody out there to at least give my hand, you know. We don't really, really want nobody to carry us. We don't. We just want someone to just lead us by a pinky just to give us something for us. You're how old now? 17. Seven, this is about, you were about 15, that mm-hmm. scene that your father read. Because you belonged to a gang, and you were defying him. What? But we're talking now about a certain man and a son, aren't mm-hmm. we? Right. Of a, uh, a Latino, Mexican-American family, right. aren't we? Right. Two generations now of gang members. Uh, and because I feared for his life, um, my first response is anger, confusion, uh, a sense of desperation. But when I began to realize what I had been through and realize what he had been through, then I start to stop making the gang the issue and started thinking about what we needed to do together, making up for some very lost time. There. You know, somewhere in this book, and I'm going to ask Ramiro to talk about this, in the book, Always Running, by the way, it's very Beautifully removing one, too. Uh, this book and other your works, poems were the basis of you winning mm-hmm. uh, the number of the awards. You write about white guy, in this case, uh, Chicano guys, Mexican-American guys, join a gang. It could be African-American. It could mm-hmm. be uh, uh, Polish kids, sure. Italian kids. Mm-hmm. Could be, why, why did you join the gang that you belong to, Ramiro? Um, <clears throat> well, I guess because it goes back from, you know, from since I was two years old. So I guess two years old, you know, I remember it too much, but it goes back when I was living in L.A., my mother. My father, he bo- I guess he broke up with my mother, and I was only two years old. I don't really remember it too much, but as time went by, you know, uh, he he would come in and out, but my, as a father, though, he, uh, to me, you know, he wasn't there, even though I, I really wish he was. I really needed a real father. My mother's boyfriend, the stepfather that she had, you know, you know, some of them abused me and everything, so it was like, was even harder. So when I was 13, I guess um, there's an incident between me and my mother that I was violently attacked to her. And then they said, you know, it's time for me to go to live with my father, you know, finally, you know. But it was, just, we never lived with each other. It was a whole different adjustment. And um, since I was already getting into trouble and I had, I guess, this thing that I wanted my control and I was only 13 years old, you know, 
So the situation between me and my father was just more declining. You know, we weren't, I was arguing, you know, we tried to talk, maybe two things once in a while, but as, some, as a son and father, it wasn't really working out. Plus, where I was living at, too, you know, it was just like, I was, I, everything I turned, you know, I couldn't go back to L.A. That's the only reason why I went to Chicago. You were in L.A., you were born in L.A.? Yes, yeah. I was. And well, I'll ask uh, your father about the moving here. Go ahead, Mr. So, so it was like I had nowhere to turn. I needed a family. I had nothing, you know. Since I, the only thing I had left was my friends. You know, some some of them I knew even before they turned. I mean, they joined the gang. So you know, when they joined, you know, they asked me. You know, it wasn't like something that they pushed me into. It was something, you know, because like I said, I I had no alternative. I had seen nothing else, so I joined. So, of course, belonging to something, mm -hmm. a gang is also a family. Isn't sure, it, in a it's way. a very natural impulse. Is why young people come into gangs because they, they want what every other kid wants, loyalty, friendship, fellowship, uh, belonging, uh, respect. And when you don't have any other way to do this, there's no real Boy Scouts, YMCA's are very limited or hardly any at all, gangs become the way that young people come together. Well, you see, see he was the second generation, uh, Ramiro joined the gang as you did, so you yeah. say second generation gang. Right. So we gotta go back to beginnings, don't mm -hmm. we? As you do in the book and right. always running. At the at the end, you're saying to Ramiro, at the very end, stop running. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll come to that. Mm -hmm. But beginnings, your father and mother, this is right. interesting. Yeah, because we came as first immigrant um, uh, people from Mexico. And what we had to endure those many years ago was a systematic demeanment. Um, you know, we were given second-class citizenship. Uh, my, my language was taken away from me in the schools. They demeaned you. A word about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, you know, we hear a lot about bilingualism. There are right. attacks on it too. Right. Uh, you knew you felt comfortable in Spanish, and you right. were learning English. So there were attacks on right. the idea of because they would beat you. you speaking they Spanish. would swat you if you spoke it in the playground in the classroom. You couldn't speak the Spanish, or then you couldn't really speak. And they kept trying to force you to do English. With the teachers. Yeah. So basically, I was a very shy, broken kid. I would. They had me sit in the corner for a year building blocks because they had no, they didn't know what to do with me. My brother, they put in with, with uh, m mentally retarded children because uh, there was no place for us. They didn't have bilingual programs. They didn't have any programs for us. Because of difficulty speaking English, they put your brother, who's a very bright guy, will come to that yeah. matter of the bright, as you, yeah. who's put in a class with retarded right. kids right? because of his broken English. Sure. And you were put and on I the side to build blocks. Kind of forgotten. Got to the point where I, even when I had to go to the bathroom, I couldn't raise my hand. I'd, I'd, I'd pee in my pants. You know, that's how bad it was. And, uh, um, and, and that really tears into kids a humiliation that when you're young and you go through this. Uh, so by the time that I was 11 years old and I came across the gang, I was ready for it. <laughs> Respect. Right. Just to have that. And so, but your father, now he come to something else. A moment ago you were saying, I said your brother was very bright and put among mm -hmm. retarded kids. We'll talk about that two-track mm -hmm. system. Right. About uh, you were taught industrial stuff, right. never mind literature. Right. That you, your father, we got to come. Yeah. Your father was a high school principal. principal. And uh, wrote books in Mexico, was a very uh, intelligent man who came to the United States for the freedom here. He was politically persecuted in, in Mexico. But unfortunately, when he came here, um, nobody recognized his credentials. Nobody gave him the jobs that met his uh, abilities, and he ended up working as um, in factories, you know, dog food factories, selling pots and pans, and uh, eventually to end up as a janitor at a college, which was close, he felt was close to what he was. It was in a biology department, and so he was actually 
the closest he could get to his intellect, even though he was He called himself a, a lab technician. Right. He was a janitor. That's right. He wanted that respect. You yeah. would you describe or talk about, I remember when Cesar Chavez, the you know, great leader of the Farm Workers Union, remember seeing, he was watching as a kid, as a father walked into an Anglo restaurant, mm-hmm. see if he could buy some coffee. With it. He went in with a pot to buy a dime's worth of coffee. And how they didn't even look at him. There's no Mexican served here. Mm-hmm. Didn't even look at him. And the kid remembered, Chavez, six, seven years, remembered. You have a similar scene here. Mm-hmm. Suppose you uh, go lead into it. The About one the lab, we were... your father in the school. This scene on page. Do you recognize that? Okay. You recognize? Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you lead into that and read that? And then okay, this is where he, they're, they're, the, the teacher's talking bad to him. Set the scene for Okay, that. what it is is that he had... I got kicked out of school, so he brought me to go to school work near where he worked. He worked Your at father. Pierce College in the Valley, yeah, yeah, where my father worked. And so I went to school about a mile down, and one day I walked into um, where he was at, and um, let me just tell you, my father worked in the biology labs and maintained the science department's museum and weather stations, but he was an overblown janitor. Dad cleaned the cages of snakes, tarantulas, lizards, and other animals used in the labs. He swept floors and wiped study tables, dusted and mopped the museum area. He managed some technical duties, and Dad felt proud of his job, but he was only a janitor. There's nothing wrong with being a janitor, and one as prestigious as my dad. But for years, I had this running fantasy of my scientist's father in a laboratory carrying out vital experiments, the imagination of a paltry kid who wanted to so much to break away from the constraints of a society which expected my bother, father to be a janitor or a laborer when I wanted a father who transformed the world. I had watched too much TV. One day, I walked into the college's science department after school. Mr. Rodriguez, you have to be more careful with the placement of laboratory equipment, trembled a professor's stern voice. I understand. Sorry, I understand, Dad replied. I don't think you do. This is the second time in a month this equipment has not been placed properly. I glanced over so as not to be seen. My dad looked like a lowly peasant, a man with a hat in his hand, apologetic. At home he was keen, el jefito, the word. But here my father turned into somebody else's push-around. Dad should have been equals with anyone, but with such bad English. Oh, my father, why don't you stand up to them? Why don't you be the man you are at home? I turned away and kept on walking. Yeah, as you say that, all sorts of thoughts come to mm-hmm. mind. I've heard this so often from families, mm-hmm. from uh, Latino mm-hmm. families. I use the word Latino rather than Hispanic. Sure. Uh, because a lot of guys say Hispanic is too fancy. Yeah. You know, plus, Latin. It doesn't relate to <coughs> us. Yeah. Plus, but it also means. So you're going to say, Ramiro? Plus, it also means his panic. It's mm. like something that they're labeling us. Mm. They, they're panicking. <laughs> Panic. <laughs> there you go. But the matter of your father is the master, mm-hmm. we come to the macho right. idea, of course, that figures in so many families. Sure. But at home, mm-hmm. in charge, and suddenly. And you saw him humiliated. Right. This is and it, to- it tears into you. Then you begin to realize what society does to us, that we do have a second-class citizenship, that all our strength we have within us, because there's a lot of strength in our families and, and, and within us, gets undermined as soon as you confront society. We're talking to Luis Rodriguez and his son, Ramiro. Always Running is this memoir that has a great painting by Tamayo. Right. Mm-hmm. And the subtitle is La Vida Loca, 
which is, means the crazy life. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it called that? Did they yeah, call it the crazy it. life. Mm-hmm. Is they called it here too in Chicago? Not really. It's a totally different thing. Yeah, and the kids don't do Spanish much, do they? Yeah, it's, oh, do they? Yeah, some gang and and uh, days. These are gang days in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The poet and the publisher you publish it to, and mm-hmm. and the uh, writer of memoirs, uh, Luis J. Rodriguez, and his son Ramiro. So. That was your father. Right. And your mother was something different. She also had an intelligence. That's right. Though she came a different background. Right. But what she had was <clears throat> this real sense of her Indianness, um, and and was very emotional, very uh, expressive. My father was not. He was very cold, very detached. But my mother, which is full of laughs, she laughed loud, she cried hard. She's just one of these kind of people. You know. But she was also put among backward, or she had a, a f- quick wit and intelligence. Yeah, I think part of the problem is that she looked very Indian. Uh, she was very heavy, and um, and because she didn't speak Spanish, and she felt uh, less than other people, so she wouldn't get out in the world too much, you know. Um, and up to this day, she does not speak English. She just continually just lives her life. Yeah. She used to not even go to church on Sunday because she was afraid of she couldn't communicate. So she would have her altar, which a lot of Mexicans have in the living room, and she would have the saints and oh, the candles. altar at the house. Right. And she would pray there, you know, to the candles and the saints, and that's how she worshipped. Yeah. So this is the family. And we haven't talked about your, your siblings, your brothers mm-hmm. and uh, sisters. Right. There was an older brother, Rano. Rano. Which means yeah. it's kind of means like the frog. We all had animal names. Animal names. Yeah, I was called Grillo, which is the cricket, and I, my sister was the duck, la pata, and then I had a, another sister, cucaracha, the cockroach. Cucar. Did you know about this? Uh, no, I the, didn't know about. So this is certain, a certain <laughs> color. So connected with nature too. Right. And my dad kind of gave us all these names. I think being a biologist and he was into nature and trees and life. Uh, he, 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 that was his way of kind of connecting yeah. us to that. But sticking with school for a minute, you had a certain yen, didn't you, for what led you? What was it? Because you were interested in reading certain things. I, what happened is I walked into a library, and this is a Maria teenager, and been in the street, and I came across some of these, um, those black experience books that came out in the 60s. Prior to that, there was nothing I could relate to. Came out of what books? Out of the 60s, the black experience books. Oh, black books. experience. Yeah. Um, you know, Man Child of the Promised Land, and then Puerto Rican Perry Thomas's uh, mean, um, Down These Mean Streets. Down these mean these streets. books called to me, I mean, ah. and I began to read them. And it was kind of like at that same time that I began to start documenting what I was going through. Now, I didn't know how to write, but that wasn't the point. The point so, was I was trying to document So, Perry Thomas's book about a Puerto Rican kid mm-hmm. in America, right. and Claude Brown's about a That's black right. kid, Influenced you, the 60s yeah. books. Right. It's a perfect case here. So, so go ahead. And there's a sense of continuity, so hopefully I'm thinking my book might influence some young kid who's getting up. But it was important because then I started documenting on my own, writing uh, in jail, started writing little little you know, vignettes of what I was going through and, and documenting my life then. And, um, and even though I didn't know how to write, again, the point was that I was doing it, that I always saved every, every piece of it. Because later on, when I did learn how to write, it was there, and I could use it, and it became a lot of the book. You, you know, say in jail, you're right. right? So we have to talk. All this time that you were starting to read this mm-hmm. stuff, 
you also part of gangs, and right. the fights you had were unbelievable. Right, and right. there were killings. There's too. killings. There's a lot of violence, um, armed robberies, everything. This is East, this is in the barrios of East Los Angeles. Yeah, and just really the the barrio that we were in was just outside East LA proper. The people it's still part of East LA. They it's called South San Gabriel which is the hills just outside of East LA. And our rival gang, the main gang, was the gang around the San Gabriel Mission. You know, the, the California missions, a lot of the barrios uh, were the ones just around the missions. So uh, you and your friends, there mm-hmm. was this loyalty. All right. And yet, how old were you when you started? How old were you when you joined the gang? Well, I was 11 when we started our first oh, 11 gang. when you joined yeah. the gang? 11. Well, yeah, and what I did is we kind of started one. In your case, Ramiro, and recently, how old were you? Fifteen. Fifteen? You were an older guy then? Yes. Yeah. Are you with a a gang now, too? Yes. Still are? Yes. Well, what, what, uh, question, what does it do? (laughs) Somebody asked somebody, uh, what work do you do? What do you do when you meet somebody at a party? Oh, I'm an accountant, or uh, (laughs) or I work in a factory. Here's a gang member. What do do you do? (laughs) What does a gang do? Um, well, a lot of people, they like to label us all gangbangers, all criminals, all this and this and that, you know, we can shoot people, we do drugs, you know, you know, and, and for some reason, some aspects, it's this, this true, you know, there are some criminal things that happen in the gangs, but what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, why do a lot of us do this, you know, I mean, it's a lot, of, we have a lot of hurt inside of us, you know, in my community right now, where we live at, there's really not no creation, recreational places for us to go to, no community centers, no... No, nothing for us to build our, 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 something on, you know? So that's what we turn to. We turn to each other, you know, the, the, the community, the kids that are around there, and, you know, then things happen, you know, and then there's still a lot of poverty, so, you know, the, they, the, we get fed it, we, you know, we're, we're feeding it to the drugs and to the guns that people bring into us. We're not the ones that manufacture, we're not the ones that grow all the drugs, but they come into our, you know, our communities and something to feed on because it's just, you know it's something there you know we we had nothing else and all of a sudden this is something new coming in nothing else is coming in no, no really jobs around us or nothing so so what happens is but you know there's a lot of other things too that that, that we do you know some some of the boys they go to the soup kitchen help the homeless you know they they, well, they do yeah you know the, um, we hang out with each other we go to movies you know we we just go to each other's house or listen to music we do everything that other kids do too you know and um I haven't, I, you know, it's been, it's been a change for me because I haven't held a gun in my hand in a long time. I haven't done drugs in a long time. So a lot of things are, you know, are, are little, at least a little bit changing, you know, but, um, but things do have to change for our community. Things that, you know, people just don't want to do it. You know, they want to just push us aside and say that we're all this and that, we're all scum and all this, but it isn't true. We're human beings, you know, we need, we have our rights as everybody else does. Does this ring a bell to you? Yeah, Maybe. very similar um, impulses that I had. You know, and and also because I, I I started having his friends come to the house, and it's true they're really just here in Chicago. Yeah, they're really yeah. decent guys, and they want to do good, but they're some of them just really don't see any other way out. Let's see, you join a gang, it's, you're not respected out as as Ramiro points out, very little recreation, and there is, we know, razor's edge life mm-hmm. economically. Yeah, poverty is there, and you belong to something it's like a club. You belong, and you get respect from your friends. Well, how do you get respect if you lash out or mm-hmm. something to, right. to show you're there or something? And so you you had that in L.A., right. East L.A. Yeah, because what happens when you have all this self-hatred, 
It ends up turning into hatred for people that are just like you. But the gangs fight each other. They yeah. fight, you know, and basically they end up fighting around the same racial groupings, more or less. We did in those days. You know, Mexicans fought Mexicans and blacks fought blacks. Uh, here in general, it's basically the same, except that, you know, he'll, he points out how now it's mixed up. The racial thing isn't as big. Um, his his gang has Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, blacks, and some whites. So, well, your gang is, uh, as you, to be religious, ecumenical. Your gang is uh, uh, universal. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> United Nations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so mainly they're concerned about the neighborhood and 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 that kind of thing. But us was racial. We we yeah. we, we come combined as. Mexican but against people. one another. But that's the problem. Like your right. gang, La Lomas. Right. Fought Sangra. Right. You, and they're both Hispanic That's or right. Latino groups. Right. We know that black groups fight black groups. Right. In L.A., what, the, the Crips bloods and, and the, the Crips. Bloods. Right. Right. And here, of course. Sure. And the, and again, this is again, it comes from that self-hatred, that demeanment, that process of demeanment that leads us to not value ourselves, so therefore we don't value the other people. Is this, is, is your father's life, your father... Do your your fellow gang members know about your father? Yeah, a lot of them know. You know, you know they've been they gone to me. They you know like one one time my father was reading a, 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 a TV station and then one of them one of my boys went with me to. They saw him on that. Yeah, but does he have an effect on? Um, as I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to really say he has an effect. You know, I mean, it's like. It's easy. It's easier to tell other people what you're doing, what you see, but except to go into your own community and do it because a lot of them they know where I'm at. They know where I'm coming from, and they see. You know, they see it. You know, and uh, some of them do try. I guess they do have an understanding. They have this feeling like you know something new, but it has to be more than just you know my father coming. It has to be more. It's just like they know that I'm still in it. They know what's going on, and it's, they have to. You know, it's other people have to help. You know, other people have to bring in. Go inside the community and help them out too. Yeah. You know, but now, now you, you, when you were in the gangs and and you still are, but I mean you no longer have a gun on, no drugs. Okay. What does the gang do now? You say it helps. Does it do? Still fight among each other? Yes. You know, always, like that. I said, some of them, you know, there's still guns huh? and there's still guns and drugs in my gang yeah, and everything. But still that. you know, but thing like I said, it's little, at least, at least for me, but. For hopefully for some of the boys, because some of them are getting a little, you know, they do see me out here. Some of them, they you know, they see my father, you know. So this like the understanding, just yeah. a, just has dick step by step. You can't just change the whole world. You were going life. to Roberto Clemente yes. school. You, 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 you're not there now. I'm still there. You're still there. You're going there. Yeah. Both are working in a, in a supermarket. Yes. And so you're doing. I'm working at Jules. He's also got a three-month-old baby. The what? He's got a three-month-old baby. He's a oh, father you do? too. Yeah. Oh, you're the father of a baby. Yeah. No. Uh, is the mother with you? No. no. You got the baby? No. She, oh, she has the baby. Do you see it? No, she, she's in Florida. Huh? Oh, she's, she's in Florida. Florida with him. But he does give money. In other words, you know, this is helping, I think, get him to be serious, and he's giving money to the baby. I suppose we should yeah. hit that subject, the idea of fatherhood right. and uh, single parenthood and mm -hmm. the pregnancy of girls and what happens in a society. Sure. Was that the case in L.A. too? Well, for me, I was kind of, I was fortunate. I had both a mother and a father. And they were there um, for everything that I went through. They were very good parents, which I guess makes the point that it isn't always the case that a broken family leads into gangs. Sometimes people with good family get pulled into gangs. Um, which, but see, if you have a broken family, it really makes it hard. It, it, it's just extra hard to, to maintain yourself when you don't have your own family. But I was thinking also of the, uh, of the 
responsibilities. You still feel a sense. You feel a sense of responsibility. Yes, I do. For the baby, mm-hmm. you send dough. Is that it? Yes, yeah, send her hundred dollars every month. Mm-hmm. Something because that's my that's my boy. You know, I have a little boy, and it's like I just wish I had a chance to see. I haven't seen him since he's been born. Yeah. We're talking to Luis Rodriguez, and his book has all this always running because that's what you were doing, wasn't that's it? That's right, all the time. And with him is his son Ramiro here, who lives in Chicago. Well, you're in Chicago now. That's no, right. you live Chicago here now. Mm-hmm. And Humboldt Park area, we know, has changed a great deal. He was uh, German and Jewish and Polish, and now uh, primarily Latino. Right. Mm-hmm. And La Vida Loca is the subtitle of the book, always running gang days in L.A. and yet, by implication, gang days in Chicago sure. too. Okay. And the, uh, what's that press again? Thea Chucha Press is my mm-hmm. press. Oh, this is Curbstone. Curbstone, Curbstone Press. Publishing. You have your own press? I have my own press here. And it's called what? Thea Chucha Press, which I named after an aunt of mine named Thea Chucha. And Chucha. Yeah. Luis Rodriguez and her son, Ramiro. So you you had different girls you went with in L.A., the gangs, right. so different. And they were kind of in their own, they were tough, too. They, they got into it. And a lot of times the wars were... Uh, around the the girls, um, either because they they would start them or get the guys going, uh, they wielded a lot of influence. Those girls. Now in those days, there was they were more appendages of what the guys were doing. Nowadays, you actually see uh, girls on their own, pretty a lot. On their own. On their own, carrying on their own activities. Sometimes even their own gangs. And really? Uh, yeah. Now Camila, whom you married, mm-hmm. you went with many girls, but Camila, whom you married. Right. Uh, and the mother of Ramiro. Uh, right. Your mother has her own. Where is she now? She well, she's, she's here now. Last summer, she moved to Chicago to help with yeah. working with my son. Oh, she's so But she came out of Garfield High School, which the movie Standing Garfield Delivered. Garfield High School. Right, was based on that the high school where Jaime Escalante was doing what work. It was like 70%. Oh, the one that Eddie Olmos did. Right. That picked, what's it called? Deliver, Stand, Stand and, and Deliver. deliver. So she, that was the high school. That was high school, which had 70% unemployment, I mean, dropout rate. Uh, it was all kind of gangs. It was a really rundown school. Kids were just written off completely. But she happened to be a good student there, yeah. which is rare, but she was. She got AIDS. She was active in, in sports and activities. And the, the thing I mentioned in the book is that uh, what was sad is that when she got out of school and we were married and she was looking for work, they told her she didn't have enough skills for the kind of work, even to be a clerical. She had to go back to school just to just to remake what, what they taught her, which is when you think about it, she was an A student and still did not have the skills needed to, to uh, be productive Isn't in society. That, yeah. that, again, that tracking thing, mm-hmm. if she was a uh, Latino, certainly. This applied to your brother, page 8384 here. Uh, a school had two principal languages, mm-hmm. the two cultures, right. you know, the Anglo and, right. uh, and you see, the, the two cultures. This right. was Keppel High School. Mark Keppel High School, right. In the school, by yeah, levels yeah. of education, the professional right. class kids were provided with college preparatory classes, blue collar into quote quote industrial arts, mm-hmm. and that became part of it. And yeah, this, and the, and this is where the systematic demeanment uh, was part of it, where they tracked the Mexicans into the lower level classes and pretty much set you up to work in the factories, and the white kids and you know white, but they were upper whites because there was poor whites, but they were upper whites in this case. They were attracted to being college students and being managers and being professionals. Yeah. Well, you know, Eddie Sadlowski, who is mm. Polish-American. I know him from you the know steel Eddie. workers. Yeah. But Eddie tells about this with 
blue collar kids mm -hmm. as against the upper class that's right kids. and that's they really, had it too right. you see yeah because it, 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 you you attract certain kids uh, to work in those industries now this is the sad thing LA as you know had a large industrial base Chicago and LA were the two largest industrial centers in this country and the East LA area just like South Central fed into those industries the steel mills the auto plants the rubber tire plants in the 80s those plants died and here in Chicago, the same thing. You're hitting a big thing, aren't mm -hmm. you? We speak of the role models leaving a community. Mm -hmm. A lot is said about black, black African-American. The mm -hmm. doctors, lawyers leave, leaves the pimps and, mm -hmm. the, and the prostitutes. It's not the doctors and lawyers who were the role models. It was the industrial workers, right. the people in the plants. Because your father it was the worked steel in worker them, yeah, and the packing house uncles, worker. Right, and then you, you, you figured I would work in there. And they've closed. And they've closed. And that's the big and thing. And very little to replace it. All the electronics that came in that should have been able to move people into another area of, of work uh, has not provided the kind of jobs that these young people have. And if you look at it, those 80s when the jobs left were also the greatest periods of gang violence in both L.A. and Chicago. When the, when the factories That's closed. Right. So the mm -hmm. connection is a, there were lot, a lot of the, uh, your, your, your friends in the gang, their families, one way or another, were affected by this, were they? Yeah, they still are. You know, some of them don't work. Some of them actually let them boil by themselves, too, you know. Um, and it's hard, too, because some of them are, do try to get jobs. Some, a few of them work, you know, they're trying, but it's just like some of them, they take a job, it don't even last too long because, I don't know, this turn is too far. It's not around them. It's always in, in Niles sometimes. Some of the jobs have to go all the way down there to get it. So it's kind of hard. So this is interesting. A lot of the jobs have gone to suburbs. Yeah, that's true. Where uh, black people and uh, Latino people don't live. Right, right. And, and, and difficulty getting there. Yeah. That's happened to a number of that's places. Right. Mm -hmm. Would the guys in your gangs, would they, if they had these jobs, do you think they would take these jobs? Yes, I, really would, I, would, I don't know for a fact they would. They've, yeah. been, they've been trying to look for work. Yeah. It's funny how it all connects, doesn't it? Yeah, in fact, one of the points I point out here is that when you don't have an economic life, drugs comes in and fills the vacuum. But I'm convinced that these young people would let go of drugs in a hot second if there was real, viable, productive work that they could do. They would let it go. So we come back. Your book deals also with the people, the relationships, the personal relationships of the Latinos and uh, themselves and others there. And also with police. That was always a factor, right. wasn't it? And, uh, right. Funny, we're talking about Los Angeles, aren't we? That's Two right. trials going on right now. And in fact, I think the, the, the Rodney King incident and the violence that occurred uh, after the verdicts kind of proves almost everything that yeah. I've said about what happened in my life 20 years ago. There's one incident here in which you and the girls, you guys, at the La Lomas, you're having a good time and you're being and up above us, some white guys teasing you. Right. Hey, you wise guys, now you guys are macho. Is that macho, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell that? So it what turns happened, out there's something else. That's right. We think they're just a bunch of white surfers just challenging us, calling us names. Okay, we'll go and fight. It's not a fight like anybody else. Turned out they were cops. As soon as we came up there, they pulled out their guns, forced us to kneel and then squat, uh, kept us there for many a long time, throwing dirt in our faces, getting us to get riled up so they could... You, you mean know. they trapped you? That's right. You know, they, they were, uh, the word is provocateur. That's right. They, they were provoked. baiting us. Huh? Yeah. Baiting you. Right. And deliberately. And, right. and what they were hoping for happened. You, right. you accepted the challenge. Sure. 
And it was a way to keep the Mexicans in those days out of these beaches. Of course, nowadays, it's full of Mexicans there, but that's only because sheer numbers couldn't keep Oh, them you were there at a beach where right. you shouldn't have been. Right. And they, you, yeah, those, some of those beaches were for white people. That's just the way it was. We know we haven't talked about because you talk about being a busboy mm-hmm. and doing other work in restaurants and how the waiters and waitresses mm-hmm. helped you. But the raids, right. now we come, because many are uh, undocumented. That's right. Workers, so right. what happens? There was that fear, isn't there? Yeah, that of fear. Of the that, INS coming right. in. And they were always coming in. They were always raiding. Uh, people were flying out of windows to get away from them. I used to carry my birth a copy of the birth certificate all bent up with me so I would show them because I was afraid that then they tried to take me in too. And one of those days they probably would have, but they would look at the document, okay, they let me go. But the other people that worked with me were from Mexico and they sent them over. And that was a regular thing in, in a lot of these jobs. Send them back. Yeah. You describe a scene where the, the cooks and, and the dishwashers are jumping out the windows yeah. as suddenly the INS, Internet right. Immigration Naturalization Service guys, you know, just rush into a restaurant. Right. So to grab. That's right. So that's part of the fear. It's part it? of the fear you have in these communities. And even if you got your papers, even if you were born here, you still live under that kind of terror. Sleep do. At the beginning, your father dedicates this book to about 25 guys of his own gang and the other gang all died. And you were about 18 when mm-hmm. they died. Does, um, have you lost a lot of friends? From yeah, there? I've lost a few, about four or five of my friends through the situation. One of the things, you once tried suicide, mm-hmm. you, Luis. Mm-hmm. Well, it was just, it was right. just the end of the road for you. Yeah, and uh, I guess I, I get the sense that everything I did was really like a suicide. It all setting myself up to be hurt. Um, the, the drugs, I wanted to die in the drugs. It wasn't just taking the drugs. Uh, the spray, I, we did a lot of sniffing, and how I, at one point I had a near-death experience, and my friends brought me back, and I was so mad that they brought me back. I wanted to die. And, uh, and the bullets, I put myself in positions where... I, 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 the bullets would come at me and I wanted to be hit and so at one point I even got um, a razor blade and was going to do it myself you know it, it, a suicide is a very important part of this thing this is what's again the self-hatred the dehumanization the that these young people go through that a lot of what this gang stuff is is a kind of suicide and unless something happens, right. unless the jobs we're talking about, but also meeting certain people, mm-hmm. the teachers you had at, uh, oh, I still do have, I don't get you in trouble at the high school. <laughs> Are there teachers like, uh, well, we'll come to, in the movie Stand and Deliver, the part Eddie almost did, mm-hmm. Escalante, this wonderful teacher. Mm-hmm. Are there people like that there at um, your school? <clears throat> there are, you know, there are some people that um, that try to help me. But the majority of the teachers, and you know, and, and they've even got mad at me because I said it too. You know, but you know, I know for a fact that a lot of them don't really care or they're scared. I mean, some of them, you know, there are a few teachers in there that are trying to work out some of the kids. You know, and I, you know, some of them try to work with me. So you know, there are there's possibilities. But a lot of them, though, they just they don't know what to do. They figure out that we're all criminals. Hey, man, you know, I can't believe this. some of them come from the suburbs and they're like, they're looking at these. Oh my God, you know what are these kids? You know what they're doing? Like they're killing each other. They're doing all this. And they're getting all scared, and then they just push it aside. But they don't realize that we're human beings, too. You know? A lot of them are scared and confused themselves, the yes. teachers, yeah. So that comes to, Luis, how you came to be. You interested right. in the books earlier, but right. there was someone, 
Along right. the line, you speak a certain people. Yeah, there was a, uh, uh, I have a couple people in there named Chente, and one was Miss Basio. Uh, actually, that was her real name, and Miss Baez in the book. I, I changed Mrs. a lot Baez, of the names. Yeah. yeah. But they were part of the Chicano movement, and this is a very important part of my book. There was a movement out there for our pride, for our culture, for justice, and it swept, I got swept up in it, a lot of us. In fact, gang violence went down in East L.A. during that period of time when people Martin. were gang violence. Yeah. When people were being uh, walking out of schools for the better education, when they were protesting, there wasn't that much. I think we have to us. hit this very important mm -hmm. point. During the, t you know, we know the 60s are being mm -hmm. put down a lot. Right. It's no good, the 60s, before your time, Ramiro. But you heard of the 60s and the civil rights movement and happened and, and the Chicano movement and the feminists and everything. Mm -hmm. And so during the time of demonstrations, mm -hmm. when the demonstrations for Chicano studies, right. Right. violence decreased. Sure, because we had something else to fight for. And it was bigger and it was encompassing and it was for our people. And this is very important. We went and, and even got into our culture, Aztec dancing. It helped. Mural painting. I did a lot of mural painting. In East LA, there was the largest mural painting so movement you, you in You became country. a painter, too, and right. you headed the group. So you, you heard of, of course, Diego Rivera right. and Sequeiros. And I didn't really hear about him until Chente huh? came by and showed me the, the, these Mexican masters. Who did? He, Chente, the guy that... The oh, book. this guy Chente, right. who was a... Mentor, he was right. interested in the uh, Chicano movement. Right, right. and he actually he came showed by. you these these murals. That's right. That I didn't know existed. I didn't know about Diego Rivera. Nobody ever taught me about him or Roscoe Siqueiros. They, I had to learn. He came and showed me a book. These are things that I never heard. But when I saw that, I go, Wow, this is beautiful, done by Mexicans. You know, and it got me interested. Well, I could do it, and we can get gang kids, and we did. We had gang kids do the the murals. You worked together on a mural. That's right. Uh, does L.A. have a lot of murals? There's a lot of murals still there. Chicago. That's well, you know right. the Juarez School on the west side? Uh, the Juarez yes. School. Right, which I, I go through there and do poetry workshops with young people. you seen there. that great mural oh, there? There's yeah. a fantastic mural. It's a whole wall. Do you, yeah. Have you seen that? No, no, I haven't seen it. Well, you've got to see that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to explain. It's people coming to a new land. It's not Columbus. It's just uh, two different groups meeting. Mm. And there's a harvest. And it's a, it's like the beginning of the world. Hmm. And it was done by right. people in the community. Right, and, and I think the creative uh, uh, abilities of our people need to be unleashed. And this is partly the lesson of the 60s. When it was unleashed, people weren't killing each other. But when that was undermined, when those programs were cut off, when there was no more uh, support, then the violence happened. We need to get back to allowing our young people to be creative again. This is maybe the key, to one of the, certainly one of the keys to the whole book and your life and lives right. is just this you're talking about. When they were allowed to be creative, mm -hmm. as working together on the murals here in Chicago, you know, sure. Chicago may have more murals and than Los murals, Angeles. Right. Remarkable. Right. And among them, a different groups, among them are the uh, Latino muralists, right. Right. which of course is part of the Mexican tradition, the great mm -hmm. tradition. And so when that happens, there is less Right. Violence. That's right. And I do this when I go into the schools now, and I work with young people getting to do poetry, and there and it opens up the whole world to them, and a lot of their anger is being expressed through the poetry, and they don't have to go get a gun and shoot somebody, you know. And then, but also just the transcendence, something else begins to happen. They have something else they want to live for now. 
It's not, it's not that they want to kill anybody anymore. Now they want to do something with their lives. We're talking to Luis Rodriguez and a son, Ramiro, and uh, Luis's book, Always Running, is the memoir that's the basis of this conversation. Luis Rodriguez, uh, you're talking about school and the kids, and we're talking about creativity. Right. So you started to write. You mentioned right. it's during this movement. That's right. This was when? This is uh, in the, um, well, early 70s, actually. Early 70s. Yeah. And then Mrs. Baez is there, right. and she's caught. In a, and now, oh, you, they had school symbols, right. always Anglo guy and girl. Right. And you and Adriana Falcone. Right. Was and Adriana it, Falcone? It was, um, um, What's her name? It's danced. Me, it's, it's and you, and you yeah. did a certain folklorico dance. Yeah, because we were the Aztecs. Our, our, our mascots were the Aztecs, but all the Aztecs were white people. Uh-huh. And they were doing these stupid, um, funny dances. They were clowns. And we decided to recapture who we were. We were, the, if anything, the descendants of some Aztecs, if not at least the tribes of Mexico. And we took it on ourselves to learn the Aztec dance, to perform it, and you to and win. You and a girl named Esmeralda right. Falcone. right. And you learned the folklore right. dances. And we, and you, and by and we blew everybody away. <laughs> and so there's something. Is there, are there courses in Chicano studies at uh, Clemente? Um, well, I don't, I don't think there's really courses, but there is like, like on the days, the holidays, it's really on the students there that really bring out the pride. The Puerto Ricans bring out their own pride, the Chicanos, and they bring out their pride. But there is a, a mixture. Sometimes they, they have a clash, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. they think... They want to fight each other, Mexican, Puerto Ricans in there, but that has to change too. Is there Puerto Rican, Mexican uh, feuding? Not really, no, not that much. Really. Not really that much. It's just like you know, on the days that the yeah. say Mexican day, you know, they have. Oh, the yeah, there's a Jose Marti day, and there's a certain. Yeah, maybe yeah. there's a Zapata day. Yeah, but there is a beautiful mural in Clemente of Roberto Clemente that very few people know about. But when you go by there, you know, and he tells me how nobody touches that mural. They respect it so much. It's just like it's always there and nobody will mess with it. That is the other thing. Mm -hmm. Very few of the murals Mm -hmm. have been uh, vandalized. It's the work of the community. That's right, and they own it. And if they own it and it's theirs, they will take care of it. And that's true for anything in our community. Give it to the young people. The parks, give it to them. The vacant lots, let them fix it. Let the streets, let them work on it so that they can own it and therefore they will protect it and they will make sure it doesn't fall apart. So I'm thinking as we near the end of our, of our hour in conversation, we're talking about the possibilities. Right. When Mrs. Baez discovered some of your writings, you right. were this is good. Yeah. And that's how it began. But then isn't it also Chante, this guy, yeah. who's a teacher, said, there's more than life, there's more than the world outside the community. Right. By the way, do, your, do friends of yours ever leave the neighborhood much? Not that Do much. they wander around the rest of the city? Oh yeah, one yeah, yeah. there's a few once in a while. You know, yeah, but most time it's most, most time not. Yeah. This is the case so often in That's right. uh, groups where the African American or, or right. Chicano or other groups right. that communities hardly ever left. And it's good to open up the world to somebody so you can see the, how vast and beautiful the world is. And not to die and kill for a piece of land that in effect you don't own, you know. And yet, that's what happens to a lot of our young people. We're so tied to that land. This guy was telling you, Chante, mm-hmm. wasn't he? He showed you a globe. That's right. He showed me this globe, and just to, so I could see, he says, uh, find Lomas on this globe. 
And I turned it, and I couldn't find it. I saw United States, California, L.A., no Glomas. And he, his whole point was the world was bigger than this, and, and I needed to be part of this world. So that's what he said. So as we're near the end of the hour, there's much to talk about. I stopped thinking, uh, Ramiro, uh, your father, you read this book? Yes, sir. You did read it. So he said to you, to you stop running. Oh, you were running. You're always running, that's this right. guy. Stop running. So I got to ask you that. Um, I guess you know it's to stop running. You know it takes a lot. I mean, I guess I've slowed my pace though. I ain't running <laughs> as much as I used yeah. to, you know. But um, it still has to take a lot of work. You know, I still have to get things in my head. I'm right now. I'm just confused. Everything's pulling me from another side. Plus, I see my boys and I see some of my friends. You know, that I have to go through a lot of things. And what is it you wanna? If you had the chance to be, what is it you would like to be? Um, well, you know, you know, I want. I like to become an electrician. Electrician. Yeah, but um, see, it's like before there was. N I never saw a future. I never saw none of it. I didn't think there was gonna be no future. I didn't think not, You know, there was nothing for me. All of a sudden, you know, just this thing of becoming an electrician. You know, because I was helping this guy who was an electrician. I was learning how to become one. And that, but that was a new thing to me. That was the first thing that ever came to me. So now there's a might. I'm not going to say that, that that I think there's going to be a future for me because I don't really know. And, and then I still have this thing that, you know, man, I'm probably going to die tomorrow or something. But at least now there's a might. And that's a big step because before it was a never. Now that might is something to even enlighten me, you know. So you might learn this this trade, this skill, very skilled trade, rather be like and go to one of the schools. Oh, yeah. Is that your job? Well, my master's well, my, my going to the community with my, with my job. I don't know how to become an electrician, man. Yeah, I could yeah, work on my own, and I just help yeah. build people at the house. The lights go on. The lights yeah, of the world go, go on. Yeah, that's great. So, Luis, I was thinking, as we're near the end of the hour, the book and your son, uh, in a sense, you almost wrote this for, for Ramiro. I wrote it for Ramiro. It's like my, my gift to him, and really to all the young people like him. You know, it, it has, it's more than just a literary work. It's about saving people's lives. And uh, and I hope in the process I've saved my own my own child. So what are we left with? Thoughts? Uh, just uh, any reflections that we haven't hit. Remember? Well, the one thing that I would uh, I want people to read the books to get some insight. The insight is the first step towards change. But we really need to have a collective effort here. Everyone needs to participate to save our children's lives. It's got to put all the resources like you would to a space program, like you would to anything put them into the, these communities, into the inner city, so that our young people have something to live for. As you say that, I'm thinking I'm going back to the dedication, which mm -hmm. we talked about at the very beginning, the work of Luis Rodriguez dedicated to, he names these 25 guys from his own gang and the enemy gangs, yep. if you call right. them that, and all died when you were 18 right. before. And he says, oh, the names you remember, Daniel Indio Cabrera, Rodolfo, Sonny Gomez, uh, David Loco Dominguez. He goes right down the line, Marcellino Dadio Cabrera, at a 25. My life is a poem to their memory. So I think of these wasted lives. What might have been some of these lives right. might have been something Some Some of them were much better people than I am. Just by way of thanking you both. Thank you. Thank Luis you. Rodriguez and uh, Ramiro Rodriguez. The book Always Running by Luis Rodriguez. La Vida Loca, Gang Days in L.A. Curbstone Press. It's available. Thank you very much.